So, um, a psalm. Which psalm? Well, before I sort of reveal the psalm, some of you will already know it, but before I reveal it to everybody, the psalm that we're looking at today, just ask this question. Have you ever been asked um, to name your favorite film? Or your favorite book? Or what's your favorite food? Yeah, what's your favorite piece of music? Or your most famous, famous, famous uh, song? Ever been asked that question? Those questions, aren't they really infuriating? Because <laughs> you think, I can't think of one. There's not, there's not a single one song that, for me, is my favorite. Because if I think of that song, I can think of another. It can be quite infuriating, <laughs> trying to work out the answers to those questions. Fun, though. Worse than that, though, has your partner or best friend ever asked you this question? What's the most favorite thing about me? <laughs> Okay, that's a tricky question. Is it a trick question? If, if I talk about something physical, she's going to say, well, you're shallow. <laughs> how shallow? If I talk about something non-physical, it's, are you not attracted to me? <laughs> how do you answer that question? Um, the fact is you can't answer these questions really, really quickly, can you? Um, in fact, for Sarah's most significant birthday most recently, I won't reveal which one it is because um, there's no way you'll know otherwise. Um, <laughs> Uh, as a present, I bought her a book called The Things I Love About You, and it was about that thick, and you have to fill it in going through, filling in all the different things that you love, and it's um, about the person that you're giving it to. And, and I found that book, I thought I'd prepared plenty of time. A month before her birthday, I got it, and I started filling in these things, and by the time her birthday came, sticking out pictures and all this kind of stuff, by the time her birthday came, I still hadn't completed it. <laughs> so I handed it over and said, well, it's two-thirds completed. It's a work in progress. There's more to complete. In fact, I still haven't completed it, have I? No, but we'll get there. <laughs> the truth is, um, the truth is, you can't sum a person up with just sort of one sentence or one word. It's in incredibly hard. Um, now, for those who've heard me speak before, you might be surprised to hear that I'm actually a man of few words. There weren't very few words last couple of Sundays ago, Mike. You went a little bit too long. <laughs> But generally, I have very few words. Um, people often complain about it. I've sent you this long text, and you just said, fine, <laughs> or OK. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, that's, that's all I needed. Sometimes few words are best. Sometimes we can get right to the point by just using a few words. I'm going to try and use fewer words than normal this morning. In fact, Proverbs tells us that truly wise people use few words for example. But I wonder how you'd answer this question. In just one sentence or just a few words, why do you worship God? What is it about God that makes you compelled to worship him? If you were to explain to someone who didn't understand why you believe in God, why you believe in him, and you only had a few short words, what would you say? Where do you start? The psalmist does this exactly in Psalm 117. So um, it's going to come up on the screen there. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 117, not 13, 117. And it's really short. It says this, Praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise him, all you people of the earth. For he loves us with unfailing love. The faithfulness of the Lord 
endures forever. Praise the Lord. And again, why not? (laughs) Praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise him, all the people of the earth. For he loves us with unfailing love. The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. It's the shortest psalm in the Psalms. It's the shortest chapter in the Bible. It's two verses, sorry, two chapters away from the longest psalm and the longest chapter in the Bible. Many scholars believe that this psalm was written by the Jews in exile. The oldest psalm was written by Moses. And so the psalms span a a massive period of history. It's not all David. It's not all one period of time. They, they, They span a long period of time. And many scholars believe this one was written when the Jews were actually in exile, surrounded by unbelievers, people who didn't believe makes it particularly relevant to our own time, what we can learn about it. Psalms are songs, they're poems, they're art. They're meant to convey more than just the surface value of the words. The way they're structured, the specific words chosen, the groupings of those words, it's all really significant. And people of the day would have understood that significance. It was the language that they knew It can get a little bit lost in translation when we just read it from a translation. And so it's worth spending a bit of time trying to understand what does the psalmist really mean here? There's a lot more meaning under the surface of the psalms. So whilst this is indeed the shortest psalm, the shortest chapter in the Bible, there's actually quite a lot to unpack, but I am going to try and do it quite succinctly. (laughs) One of the things to unpack is the fact of its brevity. The fact that it's short, that won't be an accident. The psalmist would have deliberately made this short, would have been making a point. The psalmist would have effectively been saying, this is all you really need to know. This is everything you need to know in a nutshell. The shortness of the psalm is actually a point in itself. So let's unpick, uh, unpack it a little. It is a complete psalm. Uh, its structure is ternary. There's an encouragement to praise, and there's a justification for why we should praise, and then the psalmist, with praise the Lord, praises at the end. So it sort of goes ABA like that. But um, let, let's just look at the first verse. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise him, all you people of the earth. First of all, we have to consider the, the word praise. As I've said before, when, when I first spoke about a psalm this season, um, there are 10 Hebrew words for the word praise. Where it's translated in our Bibles as praise or as worship, there's actually 10 different Hebrew words. Not only do those Hebrew words sometimes massively differ in terms of how we praise, sometimes more subtly, but sometimes massively differently, but often the context, the way they are used, means that one word for praise can actually have several different connotations, and you you need to understand the context. So what can we learn about praise the Lord here? The two Hebrew words used here are different. The first praise is different to the second praise. The first praise comes from hallelujah. Um, But the part of hallelujah that it comes from is separated from the Lord. And um, because hallelujah normally means praise the Lord. But the halal part of it is separated. It basically means to boast. Boast about the things God has done means tell. It means don't be ashamed to say, this is what God has done for me. That's what it means. How do we praise God? This aspect of praising God is just to tell, like Alex did, like many people have done this season, just tell what God has done. 
And the second use of the word praise in this verse is to commend God to other people, to recommend, like, like a review. I said this before, a review of a restaurant or something. If you go and have a, an amazing meal, you don't keep it at yourself normally, do you? You tell other people. You say, you've got to go to this restaurant. Or if you, you, know, you hear an amazing song, uh, or you go to the theatre, or you have some kind of experience, a great holiday, you share it with people because you want them to know you had a great time. But also, you want to perhaps, you know, with friends, you want to say, look, you'll love this. And, and how often do we listen to people's recommendations and actually act on someone's recommendations? This is what praise means here in this context. Recommend God to others. Give them a good review. That's not meant to be flippant. This is what praise is. And again, that was a revelation to me when I saw it in the first psalm that I looked at this season. You know, just realizing, yes, the whole point of praise is not, it's not to sort of tell good, God how good he is. God already knows how good he is. The point of praise is actually for our benefit. Because when we praise God by telling other people about him, other people get to experience God's love. You know, I remember um, growing up in the church, and I remember the testimony of, a, of an old lady who would probably be about 140 now, <laughs> um, if she was still with us. And she gave a testimony of how she had come to faith. And I it had such an impact on me as a six-year-old, hearing this 75-year-old lady tell about when she was a young person, how she came to faith. It had a massive impact on me. It contributed to my own faith journey. So these things, you know, praising God is for our benefit. It brings other people to God. Okay, further context in this. Praise the Lord, all you nations. All you nations. What does that mean? It actually means, uh, the, the, the Hebrew word for that, all you nations, actually means all of those who aren't Jews. That's what it meant at the time. All of those who aren't Jews. So it's basically this, you know, praise the Lord, everyone who doesn't believe in him right now. Okay? If we were to, to sort of modernize that to our own thinking, it's basically telling us not to just tell one another, but to go out and tell people who don't know him. We are to commend God to people who don't know him. In fact, this is one of the reasons that this, this use of this word here is one of the reasons why scholars believe it was written in exile, because uh, it wasn't in the temple. Normally, psalms were declared from the temple to believers. But here, it's, it's declaring outside the temple to the people who had exiled the Jews, the people they were living among. In summary, then, the psalmist is encouraging us to boast about God and recommend him to those who don't currently believe so that they might also come to believe in him and do the same. <laughs> how do we do that how do we do it in, in a moment the psalmist does it in just one verse how on earth do we do that the creator of the universe of 200 billion galaxies all of 200 billion stars on average the one and true holy God who has the power to heal and forgive sin the one who offers eternal life triumphing over death where do you start to tell of his greatness is it even possible to stop when you get started, John says of Jesus at the end, um, if all his works were to be written down, there's not a single book that could contain the whole. There's just too much to be said. Where, how can we condense that into a few words? Yet the psalmist does it. The love of God. 
I've titled this, I'm not sure if the title's come up yet, but <laughs> the title of this talk is, It's All About Love. Verse 2, for he loves us with unfailing love. The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. This is it in a nutshell. This is the recommendation, for he loves us with unfailing love. A simple answer. Because of God's love. But when you look at these words, another translation, it says, for his great love for us. And when you look at the word that that great comes from, it means powerful, it means triumphant, it means victorious, it means greater than anything. We're not talking about a simple love here. We're talking about the most powerful thing on earth. God's love casts out all fear. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. I remember time as a student when I was um, in a house with some flatmates, and we had this very bad experience with someone who um, effectively came into our house and was threatening us. And, and as they left, I said, you're not coming back. I'll stop you from coming back. And he looked at me with like evil in his eyes and said, you won't stop me. I'll come here anytime I like. And I went to bed scared. I went to bed fearful. And I prayed. I said, God, I don't know what to do. I can't stand up to this guy. Will you sort it out? And in that moment, normally I'd stay awake all night with that kind of fear. In that moment, peace flooded into my spirit. It was just undeniable. Peace cast out all my fear. I slept like a baby. He never came near the house again. That was perfect love casting out fear. God's love forgives sin, Ephesians 2, 4 to 5, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in sin, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. His love defeats death, John 3, 16, well-known verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God so loved that he gave his son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That is how great God's love is. More than that, it defines who he is. You know, in 1 John 4, 8, it says God is love. He reiterates it again, uh, eight verses later, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. And further in 1 John 4, 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The Psalms speak so much of his love. Just one example, 86, Psalm 86, 15, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is how God is defined. He is abounding in love and faithfulness. It's because of love that God created the universe and tuned it so finely that we could have life here. In love, God sought out Adam and Eve when they had sinned and drew them back to himself. It's through love that God continually forgave Israel when they kept going wrong. It's through love that Jesus came, that God sent Jesus. It is through love 
that we as sinners can have eternal life. But let's look at this last aspect here. For he loves us with unfailing love, with powerful love. The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. So this faithfulness word, it's actually a character of love. And it's really significant here because every society, every civilization, because we are actually made in the image of God, has a knowledge of love to a small degree. Even without knowing about God, we're capable as humans of loving each other, of loving things, of loving people, of expressing love, of showing love, because we are made in the image of God. And so the people that the psalmist is declaring to uh, non-believers because of the love of God, when it talks about the faithfulness of the Lord enduring forever, this is making a massive differentiation between the love that they knew and the love that God possesses. Because you don't have to live long to realize that human love, whilst wonderful at times, is imperfect. It fails. Human love will fail. But the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. See, Jesus acknowledges in Matthew 5, 46, that even the heathens love each other. If you love someone who loves you back, what, what, what point is that? Even the heathens do that. Jesus makes this point. But God's love is unconditional. It's unconditional. Romans 5, 8, whilst we are still sinners, whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Elsewhere, in Isaiah God's love transcends the highest example of human love. When um, Isaiah talks about, would a mother forsake a child at a breast? Picking up on the highest form of human love that we know, the love of a mother for their child. He goes on to say, very rarely, but sometimes yes, sometimes even that relationship fails humanly. But God will not forsake you, he goes on to say. And in Psalm 103, the everlasting nature of God's love. So great is God's love for his children. It is as far as the heavens are from the earth. Scientists are still discovering where the ends of the heavens are. <laughs> Every year they discover more. There is no end. And it's likened to the east from the west. I've said this before, but if you keep going east, you'll never come to the west. If you keep going west, you'll never come to the east. You just keep going west. You just keep going east. They never meet. They might, might meet on our earth, <laughs> but actually even on our earth, you keep going. You're still going west <laughs> until you turn around. It's an impossible, infinite distance. That is how we measure God's love. You see, these are short words, for he loves us with unfailing love. The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever, but it's for, for the audience of the day, for the audience of our world, everlasting love, unfailing love, is unheard of. It's unexperienced outside of God. There's a, a well-known hymn called The Love of God. Well, I say it's well-known. It's not well-known anymore. <laughs> it's well-known to a certain uh, number of us. The third verse says this, one of the most beautiful 
lyrics to a hymn ever, in my opinion, talking about the love of God. Uh, it's a little bit old English, but it's very poetic. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and everyone a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. You know, part of the reason why I think the psalmist makes it such a short psalm is, is that they know it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible to write the love of God. It is so in, in, infinitely huge. There's no point trying. So with simple words, he loves us with unfailing love. The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. I am, believe it or not, about to come to the end. <laughs> I'm moving on to my last point. You see, love is compelling. How do, we you know, how do we communicate this amazing love to an unbelieving world? How can we get it across? Yes, there's a, there's, a, there's a place for telling. There is a place for doing exactly what a lot of these psalms are saying. Share your story. Share your experience. Recommend God. There's a place for that. But Jesus teaches us the perfect way. And Paul picks up on it. The perfect way to share God's love, to communicate God's love, is simply by us loving too. You see, one of the very last things Jesus told his disciples to do was to go and make disciples of all nations. See how that links to praise the Lord, all you nations. The last thing Jesus tells us to do is to go and make disciples of all nations. How do we do it? We do it through our love. Jesus says that love sums up all the laws and commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, Jesus says. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus takes it further towards the end of his time on earth when he's talking to his disciples. He says, a new commandment I give you, our verse of the year a few years back that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the most brilliant things about my journey, sorry, it sounds like I'm talking about me being brilliant. I don't mean that at all. One of the most brilliant experiences I've had in my journey here at GBC is hearing more than one person say, I'm so attracted to what's going on here because you clearly love each other. I can sense that you really care for each other. These are the words from, from two people I know that have become Christians as a result of the work of God here in this place. Just as Jesus said, it's by your love for one another that people will know this is real. 
So Jesus gives us that new commandment. So there's three, three commandments there. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself, love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? He laid down everything. He sacrificed his life. John explains that our response to Christ's love is that we love. We love because he first loved us. So as I come to to a close, how do we apply this? You see, love, in most people's understanding, is a feeling. It's a, a gut reaction that you have. You love your parents, you love your wife, you love your husband, you love... You know, it's associated with feelings. And feelings can be part of love, but when we look at Jesus' love and consider that he commands us to love as he loved, love is sacrificial. Love is an act of the will. It is hard. Love is a hard thing to do. So in terms of a response, uh, for those of you, I don't have it coming up on the screen. So for those of you that have a device where you can look it up, it might be worth doing this now. Um, Or if you have a physical Bible to open it. Um, You know, just to go to 1 Corinthians 13, it's it's a very, very well-known passage. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4. And what I challenge you to do this week, and I challenge myself to do it this week as well. You see, because if we evaluate ourselves and we think, well, I don't love like Jesus does. I I don't understand how I can. I'm incapable. Actually, we can. (laughs) Jesus wouldn't tell us to if it was impossible. He wouldn't command us to do it if it wasn't possible. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. He's giving a very practical understanding. If you want to love Jesus, obey his commandments. There's a thing you can do. And when Paul, describing some of the characteristics of love, (laughs) sets it out in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, we have some things that we can do. And as we do it, we will find that this love is compelling. Love will compel others to want to know what it is you have in your life. So I'm going to read it. And I want you, I challenge you this week to pick one or two of these things to say, I'm going to make a determined effort to act like this. To actually, this is going to be hard. I'm not going to be able to do it like that. I'm going to have to be determined. So if you have it, read along. If not, just listen. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. 
it always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. Those are 14 things, 14 things that we can determine one at a time. I'm going to deliberately this week act more this way. In hymnal praise this morning, uh, Adrian used a verse where, is it Paul saying, you know, actually, you know, love each other really? <laughs> Don't just say you love one another. Actually really love one another. And really love, to really love one another is to act, is to do something. And as we're serious about this, as we put this into action, as we do these things, as we honor one another, as we contain our anger and be kind, as we persevere, pick any of those things. As we do that, then we are doing what Jesus commands us to do, which is to love one another as he has loved us. And when we do that, that will speak louder than words. We won't even need a two-verse psalm. We'll just be living as Jesus taught us to live.